The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language and several different ways of destroying humanity. Saturday, the 28th of May, 2022. The Autumn Series continues with some space stuff. Our special guest is astrophysicist Rami Mandal, founder of the news site SpaceAustralia.com. In this episode, we talk about pulsars and black holes. Nearly every galaxy we see out there has a supermassive black hole in its centre. We think of things to do with all the humans. Every single person that ever was and ever will be combined. Um, crushed into the size of a cube of sugar, that's the density of a neutron star. We ponder both tequila and extraterrestrial life. It'd be stupid and naive of me or anyone to think that like we are the only ones that exist in this entire, entire universe through its entire history. It's just, the numbers just don't add up. And yeah, we talk about Elon Musk a bit too. Hello, I'm Still Gerian. This is the 9pm giant Goatsy in the Sky with Rami Mandal. Rami Mandal, welcome to The Edict. Hey, Still, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Now, I'll, I'll give more of a blurb about you in a minute. I want to start off talking about one of the really big news stories this month. Um, This is, and I'm going to play a clip, from the 13th of May, and it's from CNN. It has fascinated mankind for years, and now we're getting our first image of the supermassive black hole in the centre of our Milky Way. It's called Sagittarius A-star, and this image was years in the making, captured by the Event Horizon Network of Telescopes, and it was unveiled by an international team of scientists earlier today in Washington. And upward inflection at the end. We're not going to go with the rest of that report, though, because you're here, Rami. We can talk to you about black holes. I am. But before I ask you to explain it all, can I just say that I was one of those kids thoroughly fascinated by black holes. In fact, the high school I went to, certain private school in Adelaide, not only had like a school journal with all of the articles and photos and sporting achievements, it had a separate science journal. And I wrote an article about black holes and how they work. Um, oh. Very, I, I, I haven't got a copy to hand because I think it's now totally wrong because we've learned so much about black holes. But that that was a thing. And I was one of those kids, I think I started off um, by saying, as we all know, gravity works like this. And I thought, no, not as we all know. Black holes. <laughs> yes, aren't they just amazing? And by the way, I want, if you ever do get to find, find a copy of that, uh, that journal that you wrote, I would love to absolutely read it because it sounds fascinating. Um, but aren't we all that kid? Like even to this day, aren't we all that kind of kid who is just so fascinated about black holes? I mean, these things are mysterious, right? No one knows what they, what they actually are, like what goes on inside them. You know, there's no physics that actually work inside them. There's no uh, way that we can describe what goes on inside and what goes in. Wait, 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 out. roll so back, roll back. What do, you, what do you mean there's yeah. no physics that works inside them? So we know that like when a black hole is formed, it actually forms something called a singularity in the centre, but the laws of physics actually break down in the centre. Like the laws of general relativity don't work in the centre of the black hole in the singularity because um, 
we have we have no way of measuring it. There's no way of finding out the data about what's actually occurring in it. What we do know is that it's an infinitely insane position of space-time and it's got incredible amounts of density and gravity that is really, really hard to explain. It's, in, it's almost infinite, and that's just the number that we can put on it. I remember when I wrote about it back in 19... <laughs> Um, that the idea was, yeah, black hole. There was just this blackness. Everything would fall into it. And we're only just starting then, I think, to realise, or at least the general public was starting to, to get the idea. No, it, it doesn't look like that. You can actually see the effects of the black hole around it and energy falls in it. And I am remembering now, I actually wrote in this article about how you could build a civilization on a on a a construct around the black hole, and I'm going to say Dyson sphere here for people to, to look <laughs> up, and you could just throw all your rubbish down in the black hole and it would emit energy as everything fell into the black hole and you could run your whole civilization off your garbage, provided you had a handy black yeah, hole. Yeah, absolutely. That's a crazy that idea. I love it. It's, <laughs> I mean, it sort of does, but I mean, the actual effects of that occurred near a black hole are kind of mind-boggling in itself. So first of all, the energy that you actually get from a black hole is from something called the accretion disk, which is a sort of swirling disk that goes around the black hole and any matter that falls towards the black hole kind of gets ripped apart and something what we call spaghettified. And you know, as it falls into this accretion disk and as this matter collide with each other so as it starts having you know collisions and it creates these huge frictional forces that generate enormous amounts of energy which come off as radiation now it's not like the regular radiation we get from our sun it's like x-rays and gamma rays and really high energy stuff so your dyson sphere would need to be able to protect itself you know from 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 the, from the intense radiation coming off these things as well um, and then that's, that's not even mentioning, you know, the crazy things that happen when it comes to gravity and time dilation and all those remarkable effects of general relativity that occur near a black hole itself. Okay, that all right. Maybe my idea sounds slightly inconvenient. I can <laughs> I can now see a few problems with it. This yes, black what, hole. What, 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 why don't we start with a, with a smaller star, something like the sun first, and then we can move on to bigger things like the sun. Yeah. And, and we don't. <laughs> and, then, and then we don't even need to implode the sun to build a Dyson sphere around it. In fact, imploding the sun is probably suboptimal. Yes, for for us and everyone else inside, every other body inside <laughs> the actual solar system as well. <sighs> Didums. <laughs> it, it turns out I actually found out. I I started thinking because black holes as a concept were so new and the word black hole apparently comes from the early 1960s no one really knows who first said it mm-hmm. um and i went wow i'm older than black holes well maybe not because i also found out through through wikipedia you know all science is done through wikipedia the idea of something that's so massive that not even light could escape was first proposed by an English astronomical pioneer it says here and clergyman john michel in 1784 that's impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, there's, um, there's, you always hear about um, one of the things, one of the sort of accolades that you hear that scientists talk about, or even science communicators talk about, is you know, black holes are a product of Einstein's general relativity. Um, that's sort of true. It's you know, there was Einstein's general relativity gave us the framework to actually say you know, space time curves in on itself so much that a black hole will form. And there was actually a, a gentleman by the name of Schwarzschild who actually figured out the mathematical solution to black holes 
um, whilst he was out at war, and he didn't, he died, you know, a few years later as well after the war, or as part of the war, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I saw that was he, his series published in the nineteen fifties, I think it was. Uh, no, he would have been like earlier. He would have been like my night, like around the early nineteen fifteen, nineteen twenty ish time. Oh, that war. Yeah, yeah, the, the very first one. Yeah, <laughs> the other war. Yeah, yeah, and so I mean, he the very his, his first was, war. Yes. <laughs> and so he, as he's. His work was actually what quantified what, what, you know, what these things could mathematically be. But there were people that were before him, as you just mentioned. Um, I, I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but there were people before him who did come up with solutions of saying, what if gravity is so intense that, you know, it pulls light backwards and it bends light around and, and therefore it bends light to the point where it can't escape anymore. They didn't call it a black hole. They didn't have the equations to say it was a mathematical black hole, but the discussion was definitely there. Well, let's uh, zoom ahead a long way to this month and the news this month. You wrote about it mm. at length in uh, spaceaustralia.com. We'll get links to all these things on the podcast website, of course. This is the black hole... That I'm going to at the centre of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Yeah. Is there one yeah. of these at the centre of all spiral galaxies? Ooh, that's an ask. No, no, that's, that's a great question. Because effectively, nearly every galaxy we see out there has a supermassive black hole in its centre. Some of them don't. Some of them we can't see them. And there's one that's not too far from us. It's in the local group, but a nearby galaxy called uh, the Triangulum Galaxy, which doesn't seem to have a black hole. Um, but the other one in our local group, the Andromeda Galaxy, which is very famous, um, especially for Northern Hemisphere people, does have a supermassive black hole. But the majority of galaxies that we see, uh, you know, like 90% of them roughly, uh, basically do have a supermassive black hole in their centre, which is fascinating because it, it begs the question, which came first, the supermassive black hole or the actual galaxy itself? It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation there. <laughs> that is a great question. I wonder whether we'll ever find out. Um, so this one, this is ours, um, Sagittarius A star or asterisk? Which do you prefer? Uh, a star. So Sag A star is what a we star? call it for short. Yeah. Okay. A star. A star. Just A yeah. star. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that confusing? A star. <laughs> I'm uh, studying it, A star. Yes, but if you, say, if you put Sag A in front of it, it actually people understand what you're talking about. And also it's um, – I think, you know, the way it was done is quite clever because you can't really put the star symbol inside file name, so it kind of annoys every astronomer when they're trying to create a file with the name Sajay Star in it as well. <laughs> okay, it's there. <laughs> we now have an image of it, obviously not by going there with a Polaroid. How do you generate an image of a black hole when it's so far yes, this away? This is a really fascinating question and, look, amazing, amazing question because effectively... What I'm going to tell you is when we say the word image, we're not talking like a physical image here, like a camera taking a photo with um, you know, your phone or your normal DSLR. This is actually a radio image of the Sagittarius, of Sag A star itself. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's tiny. It's, it's, it's superbly tiny in our sky from our distance of 26,000 light years away. The thing is tiny. It's almost like the size of a... Um, a full stop at the end of a sentence on the surface of the moon and seeing it with your own eyes from Earth. That's how small it is in our sky. Wow. So the theory is that, you know, if you want to, if you want to see something that small, you need a pretty big telescope. But you can't keep building bigger telescopes, especially big radio telescopes, uh, because, you know, the bigger they are, they're harder they are to maintain, the harder they are to steer, um, 
it's costly, it's expensive, it's risky. I can give you a hundred reasons why it's dangerous to build huge telescopes. So to take an image of something like this, of something so special like this, of something so small like this, you need to network and, 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 and sort of pull together several of these radio telescopes around the world. And when you do that, um, you actually create something called an interferometer or an array. And that actually allows us to simulate a much more larger virtual telescope of that size, um, which is fascinating. It's, again, in itself, because we're using technology on different parts of the, of the world to create a camera as big as a continent, as big as a, as big as a, you know, a, a road sometimes, or as big as, as an entire planet, as big as Earth itself. And that's what we did this time around. We took a photo of Sag A star using telescopes all around the world, um, linked them all together, and said, "Everyone, look at the." look at this position in the sky right now and, and capture as the, these images as much as you can and then we'll process the data later on. So what we end up with is this um, orange. And I'm guessing the orange is a colour just chosen relatively at random. You know, it could be any colour. It's false colour. But it's, it, it sort of looks like a, a, bl- a big blurry donut. Why, it does. Can, I, <laughs> can, can you explain why it looks like a big blurry donut? Yes, this is, this is, and this is, and I'm not sure if you've seen. This is the second image that this uh, of this collaboration made. Uh, they, they're called the Event Horizon Telescope, and this is the uh, image of Sagittarius A star, which is their second major black hole image. The first one they did a couple of years back, I think, 2019. Three years ago was, now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and that was in 2019, I think, and they yeah. actually made of um, another galaxy much further away than obviously our one. Um, of the galaxy called M87, and that's also a very big black hole. And then, but the images look kind of similar if you look at them both side by side. M87. Why does that number ring a bell? I did a astro- half subject in astronomy at university a little bit. M87 Crab Nebula. No, it's actually uh, oh. part of the Virgo cluster, and it's actually one. Of, it's, a oh. big, it's the biggest galaxy in the Virgo cluster, which is the local, local, local largest cluster to us um, to us here in the Milky Way. Um, and M87 is quite famous because you've probably seen images of it. It doesn't. It's not as pretty as a Milky Way. It's not a spiral galaxy. It's kind of like a big elliptical hub of light, but it's got a beautiful uh, long jet that comes out from its centre. It's being spewed out from its uh, supermassive black hole itself, and um, that's uh, that makes it quite unique and remarkable from our perspective as well. We've got the picture. We were we were explaining why it looks like a giant orange donut. Yeah, sure, yeah. So um, the reason why we're seeing it like an orange donut, I'm looking at the photo now as well, is um, what you're seeing is the black hole shadow itself. So in the centre, oh. the little dark area in the centre is actually black hole. Remember, black holes, we can't see them. We can't see, yeah. we, we, they're invisible to us because all light that falls into them disappears forever, you know, and ever until the universe ends. But what we're seeing is material that is swirling around the actual outside of the black hole, that accretion disk I mentioned earlier on, and uh, that material can, you know, heat up in certain areas and give off energy in certain areas and uh, become uh, more visible to us at certain wavelengths. Now, what's really fun about black holes is that they, uh, they, they bend space and time incredibly. And so uh, what you get as a result of that is the images that you see are not of an actual ring itself, but some of the light from behind the black hole so that's out of our view, being bent towards us because the black hole's curved space, space time around it so much. So we're seeing an image that we would never be able to see physically. It's, it's more that space time itself is curved in our direction, and the light from that curvature is coming towards us, and we can see that as well. I noticed that um, 
some of the, the the artists' impressions of black holes show this kind of thing too. The sort of the darkness in the middle. With the sometimes they draw on the the curves of space time as a grid to show you that thing. I I am yeah. going to call them a, a giant goatsy in the sky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That works. That's it. I mean, if you, if, you, if you had if you had a big sort of blanket or trampoline, and um, you know, and you had a grid format on that blanket or trampoline, and you dropped a, a massive heavy black um, uh, bowling ball into it, it'd be a similar effect, right? Mm. And the idea is that okay, you have a, a ball of a certain size, it'll bend the trampoline down a bit. And I think we've yeah. anyone into science will have seen those. This is how gravity bends space. Uh, right. yeah. The thing with a black hole, though, as I understand it, it bends it so that just goes down infinitely. Yes, that's right. It's, it just basically almost puts a tear into space-time itself because we can't really see beyond that tear called the event horizon. And effectively, it's, it's yeah, it, 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 anything that goes past that point of the event horizon never comes out again and can never tell us about what goes on inside there as well. If you want to see some of the earlier work of British satirist Armando Iannucci, there's one of them called Time Trumpet, which uses exactly this image of a black hole <laughs> tilted uh, because the, the premise of that program, you can, you can find it all on, on the internet if you look for it. It's called Time Trumpet. And the premise is set some decades in the future looking back at either the 1990s or the early 2000s and people reminiscing about the 2010s in this alternate reality. It's quite, uh, quite lovely. Have we learned anything particularly notable and easy to explain yet from this image um, or is it too early? No, there's, there's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of papers that are out on this, on this particular Sag A star um, uh, image that, that the EHT took. I think there's like six papers or seven papers off memory, and they're dense papers. Like I read science papers, and these are like sixty pages long, dense, like huge papers. So there's a, lot of, a huge amount of science that's gone into this. Um, you know, one of the things that we have learned is that we now have a population of two of these images that we have. We had the one from M87, which was the first one from a few years back, and now we have a second one. So we can do a little bit of a population analysis as well as, you know, what the supermassive black holes do with a population <laughs> of two. N but, equals yeah. two. Yeah, this is fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's not much, but, you know, these things are hard to image, so it's, uh, you know, we're, we're getting there eventually. Um, you know, one of the main reasons what we want to learn about from black holes is because they're so intense in every way, shape, and form is... Um, was Einstein right? It's an, it's an age-old question that keeps coming up. Um, everything so far says yes, he was right, but we don't have all the pieces of gravity, as in the theory of gravity itself. Einstein's theory of gravity is the best that we have to date. But when you have these extreme scenarios um, that you can never, ever reproduce in a lab on Earth, because obviously you can't create a black hole without killing everyone, um, you know, we, 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 have, um, we have the ability to test our theories of Einstein at, at, in these scenarios. So we learn a lot from these um, images and from this data as well. Well, uh, we could talk about this for ages, but do read Rami's uh, article in spaceaustralia.com. It, uh, it is extensive. Now, Remy, the other big story um, that I that I noticed, and I'm enjoying the birds there in the background. That is fantastic. Yes. Well, welcome to Sydney. <laughs> you might be able to hear them soon. <laughs> I, I can hear them now. They're fantastic. Um, <laughs> the other story I wanted to, to look at 
Uh, was your your story on the pulsar headlined the very bright pulsar in a galaxy not too far away? First, um, remind us yeah. what a pulsar is. Yes. Okay. This is my uh, this is my bread and butter. I absolutely love this stuff, and I could talk all day about this. So, <laughs> yeah, I have been warned too much about, about this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, I'm going to start at the very top of this because I think it's really important that people understand what pulsars are. Um, so we have different kinds of stars of different masses in the galaxy and across the universe. Some are, some are regular kind of stars like our sun, some are much bigger, and some are much smaller. Now, the sun itself is your average kind of star, and when it comes to the end of its life, it's going to put on a bit of, show, a bit of a show. It's going to expand quite big and you know, consume Mercury, Venus, and the Earth eventually and puff off its outer layers and leave behind... And out for that, let me tell you. <laughs> and it'll eventually leave behind a, you know, a small hot cinder core called a white dwarf. Now, it's a pretty peaceful way to go out. Um, you know, not much happens in, in, in the local neighbourhood. Um, Jupiter and Saturn might get a bit warm for a little while, but that's, you know, you know that could be quite fun as well. Um, but interesting things happen when you get to bigger stars. And when you get to a star about the size of eight times the sun or up to 25 times the sun, um, they explode and in something called a violent event called a supernova. And we can see supernovas from across the universe. Yes, these things are so bright, they outshine their entire galaxy. Like 100 billion stars are no match to a single supernova, which is kind of mind-boggling again. Um, and so when this explosion happens, um, the outer layers of the star itself blast outward but the inner layers and the core itself collapses inwards as well. And the collapse is so strong and so violent, it compresses all the protons and electrons together to form neutrons. And we have something called a neutron star. Now, these things are dense. These things are extremely dense. Um, I'm talking the density of a, a, a single teaspoon of a neutron star, like a, literally a teaspoon of a single uh, a neutron star will weigh as much as humanity combined every single person that ever was and ever will be combined. Um, crushed into the size of a cube or sugar, that's, that's the density of a neutron star. And so um, that's, that's, you know, they're these extreme objects, again, very heavy in gravity, very heavy in density, and they spin really fast and they have massive magnetic fields. And because of these magnetic fields and these fast rotation, they generate these beams of energy off their magnetic poles, you know, off their north and south pole. And that energy is in, in, in a form of radio light. And when that light sweeps past the Earth, um, you know, like a, like a, bit of a, like a, a little bit like a lighthouse is out at sea sweeping past, you know, with its light sweeping past the ship, uh, when it sweeps past the Earth, we get a pulse. And every time it sweeps past, we get another pulse. So you get pulse, 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 pulse. And eventually you realise you've got a pulsar that you're looking at. Right. So from our point of view, and again, it's like a, a lighthouse at sea on a, a totally clear night. It's sweeping around in a circle, but if there's no mist or cloud or dust to show you that beam, then all you're going to see from your single point of view is, is a flash. And I'm thinking also, as soon as, as soon as you said rotating and magnetic field, and I go, yeah, it's a radio transmitter. That's, that's what yes. that is. Exactly, it's a giant radio transmitter, and you know, and and the actual the, the light that it's giving out is radio light. So it's kind of the kind of stuff that you get on your FM station or your AM stations. Basically, literally radio transmissions, and so um, that light is a bit longer in wavelength. So if there's dust or material along the way, it can get past that. There is one sort of stuff. So there is some stuff like ionized gas that sort of disperses the actual signal before it gets to us, um, but. 
when, if it comes to dust and other sort of uh, materials along the way, obviously not any asteroids or planets, obviously, um, you know, that light will still come through to us. Well, that's exactly the same phenomenon as radar can see through clouds. So yeah. an aircraft can navigate by scanning the ground with radar, knows what's, knows what's on the other side of the clouds. Gee, science, mate, science. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly the So same we've got various pulsars. We've got quite a lot of them, haven't we? Hundreds, if not more, that we know about. We've got about 3,000 that we know about, actually. Um, so um, we're finding new pulses all the time, especially with new telescopes around the world. Um, but there's currently about 3,000, maybe just over 3,000, um, if my memory serves me correctly. Mm. So this one, what, it's a very bright. That's its distinguishing feature, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So, so the thing about pulsars is that we we find all the all, most pretty much three thousand of those that I just mentioned are located in the Milky Way galaxy. Mm. There's probably about fifty, maybe a hundred, which are located in other galaxies. And the only other two galaxies we find pulsars in are radio pulsars, I should say, in are in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a big sort of puffy cloud you can see from the Southern Hemisphere in, in a really dark sky region, um, especially like here in Australia, for example. But we don't really see pulsars in galaxies beyond that. Everything you've mentioned just there is really close in galaxy terms. Yes, absolutely. So when we find a pulsar in another galaxy, it's, it's a great way for us to learn about the population of pulsars and see if there's any variance between the pulsars from the Milky Way versus the pulsars in other galaxies. You know, do, do they behave the same or is there something special about that galaxy or the way that the stars form in that galaxy that might indicate any variance from the pulsars we see in the Milky Way. So we want to see more of them in other galaxies, but they're just really hard to find because the further out you go, the more weaker the signal becomes against the background noise of you know, other galaxies, other stars, and all the crap that's out there in space as well. So, um, yeah, but, but it's, so when we find one, it's quite interesting. As you said, this is uh, very much your work. This is your thing that you do as a working... Uh, do you refer astrophysicist or astrophysicist? Astronomer, radio astronomer, or um, I think I do both. An astronomer, I guess, in my view, is someone who looks at the night sky, collects data, and processes that data. Whereas an astrophysicist is someone who purely just looks at data and does physics from the data. That's just my very personal interpretation of both. I, I know many people have different variations of that, um, so I guess okay. I do, I can go for both. Yeah. You've used the dish as part of this, or your team, the team that you are part of. And, and we won't get into the complexity because that's the thing about modern astronomy. It's not a solo effort generally unless you're one of those semi-pros or amateurs sitting there trying to find new comets because that's just sitting there looking at the sky and crossing your fingers and hoping something flashes into view. This is, as you said before, with the black hole work, it's transnational, big teams and radio telescopes. Yeah, absolutely. Most most of the astronomy we see today is collaborative, as in you have teams of different institutions uh, locally or even on top of that, uh, international institutions that join you uh, because you want to access instruments that are on the other side of the planet as well. So we've got some great optical telescopes here. We've got some amazing radio telescopes here, but we've got some great optical telescopes here. But there's some really beautiful optical telescopes over in Chile and some in Hawaii as well. And obviously, if we want to use those tools, we need to collaborate with our international mm. partners and our uh, fellow scientists so that we can actually access that material as well. So the dish at Parks, I mean, we do have to talk about this because it is, mm. at least for Australians, the most famous 
radio telescope in the world. I mean, how many Australians have even heard of Jodrell Bank, for example? <laughs> um, but there we have the dish. There's fact, there is fiction. But there also must be a sense of history working with it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's, I mean, it's 60 years old and it's, 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 to me, again, the most beautiful instrument that we have in Australia. It's iconic. It's, it's done so much for science and so much for human space exploration, such as, you know, the first moon landing. Um, and it's just such a remarkable piece of equipment. It's, um, you know, it, 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 it weighs two 747 jets and it sits on top of this beautiful tower and we get to steer it from our home, you know, anywhere in Sydney or on our mobile phones from, you know, from sitting in an airport waiting for the next flight or something like that. It's remarkable. That's what I mean. Internet of things is crazy. But this was, this was literally why the internet was invented, so that scientists could use equipment, and in the early days that meant large computers, without having to physically go there. And that's just quietly, although the... Uh, the War of the Worlds, the British slash French co-production, is fabulous. The one um, SBS played. They've got the astronomers physically going out to these dishes on the top of the French Alps, and I'm going, no, no, she, she doesn't. She doesn't need to be up there. Yeah, and, I know and, it's essential and, 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 for the and, and plot, but. <laughs> no, it is, and, and this is a really important point. I want to, I want to stress this point because I, I do love those shows, and I do love science fiction. Obviously, one of my favourite genre, but um, you know, as an astronomer. Um, I don't want people going next to my telescope, and I say that with—I <laughs> I mean, I say that with love. But the, the, the thing about the Parkes Radio Telescope, your telescope—it's it's already telescope. your like, telescope. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful telescope, and people want to go there and take photos of it, right? And and and, that, and it's, we encourage that because it's important that people have a part of the Australian science history. So it's really—I I mean, that's going to happen. But for God's sake, people, when you go there, just turn your mobile phones off. It creates interference and it just damages our, yeah. our observation. So, uh, you know, when you want to go take a selfie, do it just with your, you know, in airplane mode. If your camera still works, it won't hit the telescope with RFI and everyone's happy. But it just, you know, we get a lot of interruptions because of uh, every telescope, not just parks, like even telescopes in, in the middle of nowhere um, who actually get hit with RFI because of different physics. And now we have an even bigger onslaught of RFI coming from the sky with, you know, Elon Musk, Starlink and other, other providers of those kind of <laughs> services. Uh, Mr. Musk will uh, crop up a little later in this conversation. It's because it's almost inevitable, right? You're talking about space. You, you've got to talk about Elon. Let, let's stick with your work and before we take the housekeeping, uh, the housekeeping break. SpaceAustralia.com, that's your baby. How and why? Yeah, it is, and it's 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 quite funny because I actually, um, you know, I always wanted to be an astronomer. I always wanted to work in space, and I didn't go down the path of following a space trajectory. I suppose um, since I left school, I kind of went into something completely not space, which was superannuation, um, and I did finance. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> for twelve years. Yeah, so I did finance for twelve years. I know it's, it's, it's riveting stuff. Um, but it's, um, you know, I eventually came back around to it and I said to myself in, uh, when I was working in New South Wales government, I was managing a team there and building um, apps and websites and things like that for three different agencies within New South Wales. And I was about to get a promotion and I said to myself, do I want this? Do I really want to, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? If I take this job, I'm, I'm not going to go and finally follow my passion. So I decided, no, nah, I'm going to take a leap of faith and I'm going to just, you know, drop everything, drop the salary, do everything as I wanted to when I was you know, young and become an astronomer. And I set myself up with two sort of pathways. I said, one of these pathways is going to lead 
to becoming to, to doing something in the space industry whatsoever. The first one was to go and study to become an astronomer. The second one was to start a space uh, community platform which reports on space news, advanced projects, education. Um, and one of those two things has to be a success in a, by the end of the next three years. That's my goal. And whichever one's a success, I'm going to keep following that pathway forward. So when I did my studies, did my master's in astrophysics and when I started Space Australia and started writing articles and that got bigger and bigger and started hiring people, I got to the end of three, three years last year and I went, oh, shit, they're both doing really well. What do I do? <laughs> Start a third thing. Yes, of course, because I've got all the time in the world. I mean, I only sleep for yeah. five hours as it is, but yeah. <laughs> It's really, look, I do, I do recommend it to people. It's called spaceaustralia.com. I think you can work out how to find it, even if I don't put links on the website, which I will. Did you love those birds in the background while uh, Rami was talking there? Uh, just in case you're curious and didn't immediately recognise them, they are rainbow lorikeets. There are always way too many of them in many parts of Sydney. Anyway, they were rainbow lorikeets. Right, housekeeping time. Um, I'm going to plough through it. There's quite a lot. Uh, I'll keep it in uh, in in brief. Uh, the next episode uh, will be coming out tomorrow, uh, Sunday the 29th, uh, because the cryptocurrency and NFT markets have imploded this month, where we're going to speak once again with David Gerard, author of the book... Uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain and also the one called Libra Shrugged about Facebook's ill-fated cryptocurrency thing. Uh, you should be able to hear that roughly 24 hours from now, give or take a bit. For this episode, uh, because this, this podcast is supported by you, the generous uh, listener, I want to thank everyone again who contributed to the 9pm Autumn series this year. You're all listed on the website. I have thanked most of you uh, in voice form on the podcast. Uh, if there's any categories I've missed, I'll fix it up in that, that next one. Thank you so much. Uh, I think it's been a good series. Well, it hasn't finished yet. We'll we'll judge that tomorrow. And I also want to thank everybody who pledged their support for the 9pm Winter Series 2022. That wrapped up uh, just a couple of days ago on Thursday night. It reached a total uh, $4,083, which is halfway between Target 2 and Target 3. Uh, long story short, that's going to mean seven special guest episodes in winter, so some time June, July or August. I think the first one will probably be mid-June because we've got a long weekend in the first part of the month. So probably Friday the 17th, uh, 17th of June, I need to uh, contact uh, the guests, line up a few more, but also schedule people in. So expect one around then, but don't panic if it's a few days after that. They are in the pipeline. If you would like to join the many people who do support this podcast, uh, it does uh, pay for my upkeep while I'm while I'm I'm doing them. Please go right now, right now, do it now, do it now to the 9pmedic.com/tip. That's the 9pmedic.com/tip. All the options are laid out there in an extremely confusing fashion, uh, but. Uh, 
basically, there are ways of giving me money, which would be lovely. The 9pmmedic.com slash tip. Right. Time for some trigger words. Now, as regular listeners to the pod will know, yeah, 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 you know what's coming up. Uh, (laughs) This is the glass jar of transparency, formerly a Makona coffee jar. It contains folded up pieces of paper. Each word, each one rather, has a word written on it, which has been sent in by a supporter in the hope that it will trigger a conversation. But first. Um, worry is perhaps too strong. You should approach it with a sense of caution. But before I draw one from the jar, Peter Leverdink has sent in one specifically for you. Thank you, Peter. Oh. You're a regular supporter. And the word is darkness. Oh, okay. <laughs> Do, I, do, do, do you want to just ramble on about Just darkness, whatever. Or? I mean, we can talk about darkness in... Whatever context you like. Sure, yeah. Um, so for me, I guess, I, and just I'm recently you probably would have seen some of my tweets about this, um, I am a big fan of darkness and dark skies because I we're renovating our place and we've moved to a temporary place and have a new place um, gets some of those big boats parking out front and they seem to shine lots of light on those big boats which reflects back into my balcony, which ruins my astrophotography. So... I hate them. I absolutely hate them. And by big boats, you mean um, ocean liners and things like that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. The big, the big, the big cruise ships, and and they literally park out not too far from our from our view, and they um, and they just because they're all white, they just and they shine all these spotlights on in the nighttime to illuminate them for some unknown goddamn reason. They just reflect all this horrible light back into my telescope, which annoys me and ruins my uh, you know my astrophotography opportunities and. And by the way, there's not been much opportunity this year because it's a stupid La Nina. So, you know, I, I need some time to, to see the stars. Oh, it's, as, as an astronomer. I mean, I keep saying, I'm sure she's a lovely girl and loves her parents <laughs> and all of those things. But, you know, can she just fuck off for a bit? Oh, absolutely. If, if this year is so far, for the last, what, six months, seven months, it's been uh, horrendous. Horrendous. And I can tell you that by the number of times I've actually been able to take my telescope out. And if you look at my phone camera roll, it's like, oh, my God, there's one day there and there's one day there and there's one day there. So three times. That's how much I've been able to see the dark sky at night time this, this year. It's a bit game doing it from the city, though. I mean, cities are full of light. That's the thing about cities. We've decided that everything has to be incredibly brightly lit. <laughs> it is. And, look, I mean, it's it's – it, it sucks, it does, because there's certain things that you can't see, but there are certain filters you can buy to block out um, certain frequencies of light, especially the sodium lights and mercury lights that you have in, inside streetlights, and I use one of those, which sort of gives me a, a little bit of a better view of, of a night sky. Um, in doing so, I've been able to photograph galaxies that have been like 100, 200, 300 million light years away. I've even got light from a quasar, which is fairly bright, but it's that From the city? Yeah, 7.3 billion-year-old wow. light from the city. It's, it's, it's remarkable what you can do from the city um, given um, if you apply filters and special cameras. Of course, this all costs more and more, so it becomes less and less more accessible to the general public um, doing this kind of stuff as well. So We'll come um, back to that because I can see what appears to be, well, it's a, a reflecting telescope there, schmidt Casa grain of some sort, I imagine. Yes, uh, is that a Celestron? That is a Celestron, an 8-inch uh, schmidt Casa grain. When I did my 
little astronomy half subject at Adelaide Uni, we had eight-inch celestrons to play with just out on the lawn. I mean, that they've changed a lot in <laughs> decades, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, they're, I mean, they're it's, basically basically your your beast. Uh, the darkness issue, presumably, I mean, obviously, people can get out of the cities. They can go to uh, uh, country locations. Uh, the higher altitude, the better, because there's less dust um, and so on. Are there any movements to to make this uh, this easier for astronomers, or is it just going to continue? to be a pain with more cities, with more dust, with more smoke, with more Starlink satellites? Yeah, look, I mean, populations around the world are moving towards cities and away from regional areas. So the cities are becoming brighter, bigger, more noisier, um, filled with much more light pollution. That's just, a, we have to basically with the fact that people are becoming more metro versus regional. Um, now, that obviously does cause problems for astronomers of all types, optical through to radio, because of light pollution in optical light is the equivalent of radio frequency interference in radio light. Um, and around populations of people, you get that sort of interference happening. Uh, we can build telescopes in more remote and regional areas, and we do have the internet now, which can give us access to those mm -hmm. remote and regional telescopes, which gives us that opportunity. But as you just mentioned, as we spoke about before, you know, the Starlink stuff comes from above also, and that sort of becomes quite annoying as well. Um, I don't think we can get around it. I think we just have to find a way to work together. And I think that the way to do that would be to have some sort of endorsement or rules come down from government bodies or international bodies like UNOSA um, saying these are designated dark sky areas, these are dark park areas, they have to be preserved for the sake of astronomy, but also for the sake of you know other things like indigenous cultures who look at the night sky and refer to the night sky quite a lot. And we shouldn't forget those cultures because they're really important in their storytelling. Um, so I don't know what the answer is, but I think there's a rule that has to be placed somewhere there. One of the amazing things I discovered the other day was that in Iceland, where for an hour or two they turn off all the streetlights and the radio station has an astronomer on, people go outside and and the astronomer tells them about what they can see in the sky. I don't know whether they still run it, but what an amazing idea. That is incredible. But This is the first I'm hearing of it myself, but the, I love that idea. Everyone going into the backyard with all the lights turned off and just looking up at night sky from the comfort of their own homes and having, having the radio playing in the background with someone walking them through what they're looking at. That is community science at its best. Wonderful idea. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Peter uh, Leverding, for that. We will draw one from the jar because this is this is always fun. Sure. Oh, here, here's a change of subject. Miriam Mulcai. Hi, Miriam. Brewing. 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 B-R-E-W-I-N-G. Brewing. Okay. The first thing that comes to my mind about brewing is the – the chemicals and the elements that brew inside stars that form and create things like carbon and oxygen and, and nitrogen, which then go on to actually become other things like planets, moons, and eventually in one special part of the universe, humans as well. So that's what brewing means to me. Wow. Um, okay, that was not where I was thinking we were going, but you're right. We detect <laughs> things like sugars being formed in, in planetary atmospheres and things like that which starts yes, to make absolutely. carbon chains, which starts to be all the ingredients we need. Yes, and eventually you get to the point where you've got 
all the ingredients for beer and, and whiskey and all the other stuff as well. <laughs> Wasn't there an experiment done back in the 50s or 60s possibly where they did get like a chamber full of the various chemicals that you can find in space in reasonably, you know, large-ish numbers? Well, not as large as hydrogen or something, but, you know, the next layer of complexity up and put them in a jar and zapped it with lightning, well, electricity and things, and you start, like, you always start getting these more complex chemicals, don't you? Yes, that's right. So but I, I don't remember the actual name of the experiment. I, it's from my, I do remember talking about this in my planetary science uh, subject. So um, what they were doing was simulating the conditions of early Earth, um, you know, in its very, very early days, you had lots of nitrogen, lots of carbon dioxide, um, very little oxygen because there was no life around at the time, um, lots of hydrogen and um, other elements that were uh, your base core elements, and they simulated the temperatures and the, um, the amount of lightning strikes, and they were, what they were trying to do was create life out of nothing, um, out of elements yeah. that weren't living before. And so um, that I, the, the results weren't conclusive, obviously, because life didn't come out of it, but they were able to create uh, complex amino acid chains, which then go on to become life eventually. That's, um, that's so, a good start. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's an incredible experiment. It's done, there's lots of discussion still what um, goes on about this experiment today as well. What's your own view on uh, the pervasiveness of life in the universe? Look, it'd be stupid and naive of me or anyone to think that, like, we are the only ones that exist in its entire, entire universe through its entire history. It's just the numbers just don't add up. I mean, like, the actual number of stars or the number of planets out there, I'm sure you've heard of the Drake Equation, basically says that there mm-hmm. should be, you know, hundreds of thousands of populations of civilizations out there in the universe. Um, what that might mean is that you have many of those planets just having microbes and some of those planets having humans and some of those planets or human-like creatures and some of those planets having even higher-order um, creatures. But it's everything's so far away that it'd be hard to actually notice them unless you were broadcasting really loud. You know, we spoke, spoke about pulsars before and how we don't see them in other galaxies because they get lost amongst the background noise. If someone from another galaxy is looking towards our galaxy, of the 200 billion stars in our galaxy, our sun is a regular star. There's no reason for them to look around us and go, oh, that sun, that star is special. And there's no reason for them to know that there's humans there broadcasting because our signals haven't reached them yet. So it's, it's, just, it's too big to actually realise how big it is as well. One of the most amazing factoids, and you can argue for and against the details of this, was that uh, some of the, the first sustained um, high-power transmissions from Earth are, are TV stations. Uh, and so the first transmission picked up by aliens from Earth could be old episodes of I Love Lucy. And that is, their, that is yeah. their introduction to human culture. Yeah, that's right, yeah. But, Possibly I mean, Hitler's the, speeches on radio before that, which uh, would be a little disturbing. When, when you think about when these things were broadcast, as in the year, um, you could easily say, look, it has, it's all happened in the last 100 years. And we know that radio signals, TV signals are mm. electromagnetic radiation, so they move only at a maximum the speed of light. So really, the, the sphere of um, broadcasts that have gone out into space from Earth is only 100 light years across. So it's not very big compared to the galaxy itself, which is 100,000 light years across, let alone the universe, which is 13.7 billion light years in age. So unless someone's specifically looking in this region at this time, they're not going to see us. 
that's one of the elements in the Drake equation, is it? That that there may be lots of of civilizations, but they only last ten thousand years, and they're all out of sync with each other, scattered across three billion years of time. So they never get to meet. They only ever get to see yeah, archaeological remains of each other. Yes, and, that, and that's and that's only if you get to travel. If you get to travel, get to, yeah, this is the present fourth. Only because if you get to travel to those regions, which means that you need to have pretty fast propulsion, like faster than light propulsion, which is still a physical impossibility as we know it as yet. Could it ever be a thing? Is that, is that a question we can even ask? Or oh, it's a question we can <laughs> ask. I just asked it. Is it a question we yeah. can answer at the moment? In theory, yes, um, but it has its um, has its has its own qualms. Um, you know, things like wormholes. Um, you know, connected two points at two different and distant points in space time through a wormhole is works in theory. You put a single atom of matter through that wormhole, and that metal and the wormhole collapses immediately. Um, there's uh, that's that's like inconvenient. A warp drive. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and especially you know, in order to create the wormhole, you need to harness like something like a massive black hole to actually get there in the first place. So good luck with that. Um, and there's you know the warp drive uh, that we know from Star Trek. Um, I forgot I forgot the name of the um, the gentleman who wrote the paper on it. Um, anyway, he he basically said this is possible in theory, um, but obviously you need a massive ship that again harnesses power of things like black holes to propel it and. What he doesn't mention is that as the ship moves through the through space time itself, all the photons that are collected in front of it just keep building up. So when you stop, those photons discharge like a massive power bullet that wipe out and annihilate everything in front of it. So good luck going to another planet without killing it. Uh, my my <laughs> idea, I'm having some ideas here now. I'm really having some ideas. <laughs> Uh, just very quickly on brewing, one sentence answer. Do you prefer beer, wine, spirits? Spirits, tequila. Oh, okay. Yeah, Why? it's my favourite. I just like it. it goes with, you, can, you can mix it with many, as many things as you can, and actually it's, it's, it's a nice drink to have. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just tastes nice to me. Okay. I wasn't expecting that to be the answer, but there you go. Um, what about I will what's, say, what's your favourite? Uh, it, it really depends on my mood. I will say on the point of view of tequila, though, I like, I think most Australians associated with, you know, associate the flavour with kerosene because I'd never had real <laughs> tequila. And uh, yeah. when in San Francisco once, a, uh, an acquaintance in San Francisco said, right, we need to um, explain tequila to you properly. Uh, so he took me to a, a bar that specialised in tequila up in San Francisco and he was a regular there and told the barman, here is an Australian who needs to understand tequila. Please give him all the tequilas. And he just <laughs> lined up shots of about eight or ten different tequilas in front of me. And all, all I can remember from that night is, is a, text, a tweet I sent out, which just reads, all the tequilas. But yes... <laughs> <laughs> wow, t t ten shots of tequila will actually do that. It's uh, it's quite a, it's a quite a bit, <laughs> a lot of tequila take. Um, and I mean, and then we decided tequila, to go not? on for drinks. Oh yes, <laughs> no, I actually, I actually love tequila in, in, a, in a normal drink, like in a, in a tequila with in a margarita, for example, or mixed into oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. With, with some soda water and a fresh lemon. It's actually a really lovely drink to have when you neutralize it a bit more than the kerosene that everyone thinks about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 like gin. A few years ago, every thought gin was just 
your cheap-ass London dry gin, you know, Mother's Ruin and all of that. But now we have this explosion of varieties. Tequila has had that explosion of varieties many years ago. We just don't really get it here in Australia. It hasn't been a thing yet. Yeah, no, we don't. I mean, it's, it's, I, hope, I hope it becomes a thing because I think tequilas are a really nice drink to have, actually. Agreed. Thank you, Miriam Mulcahy, for brewing. <laughs> Uh, right, Rami, I've just been at the Google. Uh, that experiment uh, you were talking about before was the Miller-Urey experiment of 1952, uh, simulating the conditions they thought at that time to be present on uh, the early Earth, zapped it with electricity to simulate lightning, and yes, they got complex chemicals including amino acids. What's interesting is um, Miller died in 2007, but some of the original chemical vials had been sealed at the time and they cracked them open and it turns out there was actually more than 20 different amino acids produced in those original experiments. That's more than what Miller thought uh, thought they'd found uh, and uh, more than the 20 amino acids that occur naturally in our genetic code. Uh, and experiments of a similar uh, similar nature ever since have continued to show that simple chemicals form into more complex chemicals, which uh, is fascinating. And also the warp drive thing, um, there was, uh, well, the, the paper in question uh, came out last year uh, in 2021, and I've uh, linked to a couple of articles about that, which uh, I haven't got around to reading yet, but you can too. Later. And the Black Knight starts to blast off. Australia's space history is rich. Just the third nation to launch a satellite into space. The critical communications link to the first landing on the moon. We were right there at the very beginning in the 60s. We were one of the first nations into space. We were right there in the game. I think the nation knows we've lost a lot of momentum, but we've got the creativity, we've got the talent. We absolutely know we can be in this. No industry inspires the way that space does. Dr Megan Clark is the first head of the Australian Space Agency, which is barely weeks old. One of her earliest memories is seeing man's first satellite. I was really little, and my, my dad took me out on the front lawn, I lived in Perth, and he pointed to Sputnik. And I remember him saying, you have to remember this. And he, you know, he pointed up, he says, that's the future. The Australian Space Agency was created 1st of July 2018, coming up to four years ago. And many of the first reactions I saw from that, because I was actually at an event in Canberra and... Well, I didn't meet Dr. Megan Clark, but I was there where she gave a keynote address and so on. But people said, but we don't have any spacecraft. And then last year we had when Space Australian Space Command was launched. But we don't have any spacecraft. Why is that wrong think, Rami Mandel? Why is that the wrong way to look at a space agency and, to a lesser extent, a space force? Yeah, look, I mean, it's... 
space isn't just about spacecraft and astronauts. And, and I, I hope that people start seeing the wonderful variety, especially in Australia, that we have of our scientists and our engineers and our industry folks and our startups. And when you look at that sort of broad spectrum of space, uh, from, a, from a space lens, I should say, um, you start seeing that it's not about astronauts and spacecraft only. It's about many other things. And I can rant on and on and on about what some of those things are. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's important that we have an agency to, to sort of centralise and to sort of bring all that together at a national level and, and also at an international level as well. So um, I've heard those comments. I'm a little bit disappointed in those comments because we've been begging for one for years and years and years and we finally got one and people have been like, oh, well, you know, what's the point of one? Well, well the point is that we're only just starting our journey in space, I guess, restarting our journey in space, I should say, and therefore an agency really helps with that. What has it accomplished so far? Now, a lot, and it's been looking at industry, I know, and, and microsatellites and so on. What, what has stood out for you? I, I know, for example, uh, one of your recent news stories, with there's an, an Australian satellite manufacturing hub kicking off. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's not the only one. There's actually heaps of them that have actually been opening up in the last, say, last one or two years. Um, you know, these manufacturing hubs do a whole bunch of stuff. And they look at things like building rocket uh, shells and, and rocket engines out of 3D printing and uh, carbon materials and, and, you know, advanced materials, for example. And they need to do that testing and, and that building because effectively they want to actually fly these things into space and then bring them back down to Earth. And, you know, that material has to sort of somehow survive re-entry, be reusable, be low cost. Um, so that's that's the manufacturing side, of, you know, one side of things. But also, you know, we've been doing um, a lot of stuff in space on the international level and in, at the local level as well. And in, to credit the Space Agency, for example, one of the things they've done really well so far that I've noticed and it's really stood out for me is... Um, they've actually, I guess, put out some documentation through consultation with the industry and with the community about, you know, what's our approach and our strategy for things like robotics or uh, communication um, and, you know, uh, what do we do for our next moon landing and how's Australia evolved in our moon, next moon landing um, and what's the actual work that we're going to do for people who want to launch rockets into space from Australian soil? What, what, what sort of regulation do they need to have in place so that rockets don't fall in our heads here in the city, for example? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of background stuff. It's not, you know, there's not flashy new stuff, but it is happening. I mean, I, I, I could run through these. There's hypersonic systems. There's all the wonderful concept of CubeSats, which are 10-centimetre cube-sized satellites or multiples thereof which you launch in clusters and then, bang, a, a single large launch vehicle can spray out like a whole bunch of microsatellites, much to the annoyance of astronomers, I imagine. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we see our friends over in New Zealand uh, at Electron are getting their small launch vehicles going. Well, maybe we'll have to come back to this another day because time will work against us this time. But what's your view on the fact that a lot of this connects into Australia's defence industry, which Australia is, is you know, people may not realise what a significant defence industry Australia has um, and some of the advanced stuff we do. Brackets, I've got a link on the podcast website to the story of the Nulka drone, which is a decoy to lure missiles away from attacking your ship. It's amazing technology, that's all I'll say for now. But back to, yeah, defence. Yeah, look, I mean, 
in every country around the world, defence is kind of uh, the leading factor when it comes to space. You, know, you want to put spy satellites into space, you want to put military satellites into space for communication. There's that whole, under, uh, I guess, foundation of defence that actually requires space to exist and space products and space assets to, to exist for them to operate on a day-to-day basis. My personal view is that, and especially here in Australia, is we are a... Relatively speaking, I know Australia's space um, industry has existed for decades, but you know it's kind of restarting now. We're relatively young in the restart. We have an opportunity as a young sort of space community, space nation um, that's sort of getting its feet again um, to look at space not just through a prism of defence, but also through the prism of civilians. You know, how can civilians actually? Uh, how can we make space a bit more accessible and usable and integrated into civilian lives? Um, and so I have some strong views about, um, you know, how much money is, is, is sent in each direction. You see a lot more money going to defence, into your primes, your Lockheeds, your, Mar- your uh, Boeing, your Airbus. They get a lot more of the, of, the, of, the, of the piggy bank, I guess, versus what the civilians get. And I think that balance needs to come back into, into play, I think, a bit more. I won't go into the uh, Australian Space Command today. I was, was going to say, it, it, it's, it's amazing how much... Uh, the how much our even civilian lives are every day integrated into um, you know into space. Like when you go to a transaction with your phone or with your key card, at, you know at, you know one of those paywave things that requires a satellite you know, transmission to occur. And so every single time you make that transaction, you're you're using space technology. Your your GPS on your phone is using, or your car is using space technology. So we use it every day. Civilians use it every day, and there are actors internationally which are becoming worse and worse at you know governing and uh and, and managing their own space sort of domain areas um without being harsh but i'm again i, I feel like we could do a bit more when it comes to civilian stuff no agreed there now speaking of civilian stuff this next this next clip in and of itself has nothing to do with space i i just want to gloat Welcome back to Cavuto Coast to Coast. I'm Lydia Hu. It feels like the swings just keep coming in this battle for Twitter. Breaking just today, Elon Musk is now being sued by Twitter investors in California, accusing him of market manipulation. Reuters is reporting investors accuse Musk of buying more than 5% of the company's stock by March 14th and then continuing to buy Twitter stock until he ultimately disclosed his roughly 9% ownership in April. They say the delay in disclosing saved him roughly $150 million because it kept share prices low. That lawsuit just filed. Of course, Musk will get an opportunity to respond. That story is literally from hours before we record this. Uh, And I'm sure Elon Musk is not involved in the manipulation of the share market in any way whatsoever. Uh, my lawyers and I want to make that entirely clear. But Elon Musk is, of course, among among many other things, um, apart from being a cunt, he's the founder of SpaceX. Rami Mandel, what do you think of Elon Musk? Oh, thank God you swore first because I was about to as well. Um, no, he is an absolute. He's, an, he's a dick. He's an absolute. I, I, I can't stand the guy. He is someone who is badly representative of uh, the space industries and the space communities, and he's, in, in a simple word, toxic. He's just toxic and, and to the human species generally. Yeah, he's, he's he's not a good person. He and I know a lot of people don't like me saying that. I know a lot of people uh, get quite defensive about him. But he's not the Messiah. He's not our saviour. He's he's a dude uh, who 
is privileged, um, who has given has been given opportunity. Sure, he's got some great ideas here and there. You know, every now and then he comes up with some wonderful idea about building electric vehicles or you know re- using reusable rockets. I, I admire that that aspect of him. Um, but in general, he's a dick. That's it. Well, can I say on that? Um, yeah, look, he, you know, I, I mean, regular listeners to the podcast will know I, I have referred to him sometimes as the patron cunt of this this podcast. Um, look, he comes from a privileged background. His father owned emerald mines in, in apartheid South Africa, which says a number of things about the environment in which he grew up. He was one of the founders of PayPal, which at the time many people were trying to crack the online payments market PayPal happened to be one of the early successes. Good on him. Very sound business choice. Many other people tried to do that and failed. He and Peter Thiel succeeded. Good on them. Elon Musk is, uh, by some measures, well, he certainly is in the top five richest people in the world, depending on what Tesla's share price is today. But, as you say, a lot of those ideas are... Ideas. Let's create electric cars. Let's get into the commercial space uh, uh, launch market. Let's get into, in the case of Jeff Bezos, uh, founder of Amazon, let's get into that too. Before we go on to more broadly this idea of the commercialization of space, um, Musk and the Mars colony. <laughs> yeah, not a fan. Do we really need another white colonization of a an unexplored land? At least one. At least this one probably didn't have civilizations on it. We'll be really fucked if we do find that it does. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think yeah. it does. No, 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 no. I mean, like to be honest, like first of all, he is not the person to lead that. If that was a thing to happen in the first place. So, looking at his record, he is, um, you know, again, lack of a better word, a shit human being. And so, having him. And his ideas sort of being uh, implanted on another planet, and, and 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 the development of a society on another planet is kind of terrifying. I mean, the guy doesn't even want to use pronouns properly on on Twitter. For God's sake, it's not hard. Like you're the richest man in the world, you could do what you want. Just simply use pronouns, and it's not going to hurt anyone else. You know, if any, and he refuses to do that because he's, you know, because he wants to be special. And so having someone like him um, take those values. Um, into you know colonizing a whole other planet is remarkably bad. But on top of that, even before we even get to that point, there, it's just impossible to do. We don't have a technology to. We don't even know how to measure time on Mars properly. Our clocks are different because the way that things, the physics works, it's literally not the right way um, of going about. You know bringing humanity with you to let's go save our species and let's go colonize another planet. He just, there's so many things we have to work out. How are you going to grow food on Mars? How are you going to feed yourself? What laws are going to apply on Mars? Who makes those laws? Um, there's a whole well, bunch of things. Elon Musk. This is a very <laughs> simple course. question, Ravi. Elon Musk makes the laws. He will be emperor of Mars. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, I just want to say, terrible. and Rami, you you perhaps will choose not to comment on any of this. I noticed that also this week, Elon Musk is giving evidence in the Johnny Depp trial. Uh, he has in the past been photographed with Ghislaine Maxwell, and he's currently up on allegations of sexual misconduct by exposing himself um, to one of the crew on SpaceX. Um, it's... He's a nice chap. More broadly, more broadly, the commercialization of space travel 
by white boy millionaires. And I feel that there is a need to separate out white boy billionaires from other kind of billionaires somehow. Simple question, good thing or bad thing, yes or no? I know it's more nuanced. Bad thing and bad thing and no. It's 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 not. It's yeah. We we yeah. We you need variety. Uh, you need you need to have other voices, other people, other representation. So definitely a bad thing. Um, and you definitely don't need people who are billionaires who have power and money go to their head, uh, controlling these sort of domains. I did do a Google search before for SpaceX competitors, and the names that come came up were more. They were either more venture capital white boy types or venture capital funds or the defence primes like Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, all of all of the others. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's interesting because, like, the, SpaceX does what it does really well. Um, they actually uh, do, you know, reasonable rockets. They've been changing they, – they have changed the space game wonderfully for – no, but I mean, what's depressing is not that SpaceX has done really well. What's depressing is that Elon Musk seems to be the person who t- takes all the credit for it. Like, for example, do you know um, a woman by the name of Gwynne Shotwell, who is the president of SpaceX? Now, you don't hear much about her. She's amazing. She's literally the driving force behind SpaceX. And as a good boss, as a good employer, as someone who wasn't as sexist as Musk is, you'd think that he might promote the work that she's doing, but he doesn't, right? And effectively... Um, you don't see much about her and all you hear about is Elon Musk, Elon Musk, Elon Musk, and it kind of makes the brand toxic in a way, which is sad because SpaceX is doing really, really well. I would love to see some more of the engineers get credit for what they're doing. I mean, you know, landing those boosters back on their tail on a drone in the middle of the Atlantic, well, not the middle of the Atlantic. Well, actually, yeah, they are. They're a fair way out. Um, that is yeah. that is 1950s Ray Bradbury rocket shit, man. That is that is just what people like me grew up with, and they're doing it mostly. They only occasionally explode, but then, you know, it's early days, right? And it's working. Oh, dear. That's enough about Elon Musk. Absolutely. We've been talking a while here, Rami. I guess to wrap it up, what I want to ask is how do we get into astronomy? Um, We're into space generally. There's lots of pathways into this. I know a bit of it. You don't have to go to a university and do a a kind of maths-heavy little astronomy unit because when I did it, that little astronomy 1H subject was taught by the physics department at Adelaide Uni and – Admittedly, it did cause me later when playing like Kerbal Space Program at one bit. And someone's saying, oh, it's so hard. I'm trying to get my thing up here to the moon and I'm landing. And I just said, no, what? This is just just straightforward orbital mechanics. And then I realised I had literally just said, nah, this this is just rocket science. You'll be fine. Um, (laughs) You don't need to know orbital mechanics to get into this. What what are some of the ways to start, Remy? Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's there's so much that, as you mentioned before, there's so much that you can do out there, and especially in Australia as well. Um, look, the um, one thing I would do is um, 
you know, follow if you're if you're in school, if you're if you're if people have kids or in school, um, one of the things I use on a daily basis in my astronomy part of my job is definitely physics, definitely math, there's computer science and there's coding. So if you've got kids that are doing that kind of stuff and want to get into astronomy, it's it's a core part of a job on a daily basis. So I recommend they stick around to that as well. Um, now the other thing you could do is also check out a whole bunch of space news. And, um, you know, there's lots of space news everywhere, not just, um, you know, spaceaustralia.com, which I'm going to give a plug here, but also, like, if generally, on a nightly basis these days, um, you know, watching Channel 9 or Channel 10 or, or ABC News, there's often a space story that pops up here and there. So, you know, there's, there's lots of things happening in space that you can tune into as well. Um, we also have a growing space industry and, and young people should definitely, or even like young people like me, you know, my age of 40 years old, you can just reach out to companies and to academics and say, look, I'm really interested in this stuff. I want to get into it. I don't know how to. Um, can I do some work experience with you? Can I do some job appreciation with you? Or can I just, you know, can I, can I find out a bit more about what you do on a daily basis? And most people are very open to that and they will actually allow you to come along and learn about the job and learn about what they do as well. Um, one of the actual cool things I found was to follow lots of astronomers and lots of people in the industry on things like Twitter and on TikTok and on Instagram and ask questions because astronomers love nothing more than when people ask them a question. And when you ask them a question, uh, they give you an answer and then other people see the answer and they learn from that and they get inspired from that. So there's a whole cascading effect as well. Um, hundreds and hundreds of free resources online. In fact, I'm pretty sure you can do an entire astronomy course online these days for free through different platforms. And one of the easiest ways to get into space is to just do it, do, do astronomy yourself. And that includes um, going into your backyard, for example, and looking up at the night sky and, and maybe drawing different phases of the moon or maybe noting the colour of stars in January versus the colour of stars in February versus those in March and keeping track records of that and then doing analysis at the end of that um, or even using your phone or your camera to sort of photograph the night sky as well. There's just so much that you can do um, just from your own backyard with the tools that you already have uh, right there and there so you can effectively become an astronomer yourself, be a, a sky gazer or a, or a sky watcher and uh, record information about the sky. So it's, there's plenty of pathways to go down uh, if you do want to go down the astronomy path as well. And there's so many little astronomy groups around the country too. Uh, worth looking them up. There's probably some people near you, dear listener, who gather in a park, look at the sky on some nights. Well, we've run way over time. We better leave it there. Rami Mandel, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me still. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure and uh, I really enjoyed this talk. So uh, have a great night. Cheers, mate. Well, that's the edict for now. If you want the links, the credits, uh, go to the 9pmedict.com. Have a, you'll, you'll see where it is. If you want to support it, go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. The next episode is literally tomorrow with David Gerrard. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The internet, the internet, it is very good. The internet, the internet, it is not 
made of wood. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.